0: I also wanted to be loved and accepted just like every child does, yet I was always told that the way I was wasn't lovable enough. I saw my father abusing my mother as I was growing up, abusing us when I was growing up. In fact, I remember the first time I saw the power and control wheel in my counselor's office on campus. I. I I couldn't believe what I was seeing and reading because it was like my life depicted in black and white on a piece of paper. There were times when I felt so hopeless and helpless that moments when I didn't even want to go on living. And that's ultimately what gave me the power and courage to leave because knowledge is power. And that's why abusers don't want their victims to get that knowledge.
1: For this week's episode, I am very honored to welcome Samra Zafar. Samra is so many things. She is an award-winning international speaker, best-selling author, scholar, and entrepreneur who advocates for equity, inclusion, and human rights. She's been named one of the top 100 most powerful women in Canada and a top 25 Canadian immigrant. During this conversation though, we talk about her journey to becoming the person she is today. From escaping an abusive marriage to healing from the trauma, using her experiences as fuel to her fire, raising her two wonderful daughters, and eventually making her way into medical school. I am very grateful to have had this eye-opening conversation and vulnerable one with Samra, and I truly can't wait for you guys to listen in as well. So, without further ado, let's learn about how Samra did it. Many emails and several rescheduling attempts later, but here we are. I am super excited and really glad that we made this work.
0: Me too. I'm super excited for this conversation.
1: And I'm particularly excited because a lot of the people that I've talked to so far on this show are already like working on a project right now. And whether that's a personal project, a community project, maybe starting their own organization, writing a book and all of that. And part of what I do is have the opportunity to talk to them about the experiences they went through as a child and get to explore what it is that brought them to where they are right now. And that does involve getting to know them as a child and getting to know how their childhood experiences changed as they grew up. But in your case, your childhood experiences are already a big part of what you do right now. And you're very vocal about them, which I think is very amazing. And so what I'm excited for is to get a chance to delve even deeper into some of the topics that we might not necessarily be open about as much in our current society and our current generation. Before we do that, I do still want to go back in time. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about who you were as a
0: child? Wow. Um, You know, when I think about my childhood, it I I think about it as a very confusing time. I was, on one hand, a very ambitious, passionate, driven young girl. I wanted to play cricket with the boys outside because why can't I? I wanted to go to the top university and have a wonderful career and change the world. I was not willing to take no for an answer when people told me I can't achieve something. So I was that free-spirited, very ambitious, a bit of a rebel, an envelope pusher kind of a kid. But on the other hand, I also wanted to be loved and accepted, just like every child does. Yet, I was always told that the way I was wasn't lovable enough or acceptable enough. Uh, There were certain gender boxes that I needed to fit into. And I had the right to dream, but not the right to expect those dreams to come true. Uh, I shouldn't dream so big because I'm a girl. Uh, My dreams should be different. They should be about getting married and serving a man and being a good wife and a good daughter-in-law and a good mother because that's the purpose of a girl's life. When I raised my voice around sexual abuse or any of these other things that were so rampant around me, the patriarchy that was so rampant around me, I was told that those things are meant to be quiet about and that's just the way things are. So I saw a lot of things around me that were just wrong. I saw my father abusing my mother as I was growing up, abusing us when I was growing up, and, and then my mother also participating in condoning in it. And, and it just, it was so dysfunctional. And now that I look back, it's easy to see all that abuse and dysfunction, but growing up in it, it was extremely confusing because I didn't quite know what unconditional love was. And uh, I always thought I needed to be a little bit more of this, or a little bit less of that, and more obedient and whatnot to be able to get love from my parents and and acceptance from society. So it was it was very because you know at home it was so up and down and volatile. I would come home and I did I didn't know if I went when I went home from school one day whether my parents would be. Uh, love birds or whether they would be at each other's throats uh, and at school that was always my happy place i school and education were always my escape time that's the time where i was just me uh and that's a theme that i think has carried on throughout my life and um, there was it's i found i always found peace in knowledge and learning so i threw myself into my studies whenever things were rocky in my life and in my childhood i would i would go into my room and i would do homework. <laughs> and, and I think that's sort of why I, I developed such a strong affinity to education, where uh, every exam, every test be- became a milestone for me. In many ways, I think I attached my self-worth to the grades that I got instead of the love that I got around me. And, and I, was, I just became extremely driven and passionate about school. And became, education became a lifeline for me.
1: Did you ever open up about the experiences that you were going through at home to people around you at
0: school? I did. yes. there was um there was one particular teacher, and I mentioned her in my book. Her name uh, was Miss Susan Har. and um, so I went to a British school in Abu Dhabi. and uh, and my teacher, and most of my teachers were actually people uh, people from the u k and other parts of the world who were who were there to teach. And this one particular teacher, she was my English teacher, and um, I loved writing. So I used to write all these creative stories about things that I saw around me, you know, like stories about a girl who was rebelling and who was calling out things that were wrong. And she and I would often have those those discussions, and she loved my pieces, and she she, she stoked my ambition. She encouraged my ambition in many ways. And um, in fact, when I when I was being pressured into marriage, and when I was in grade eleven, there was a piece that I wrote uh, that I was sitting on a bed in 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 a bridal outfit, a red red gown or bridal outfit that's traditional with Pakistani weddings, and there was a lot of jewelry around me but that jewelry was actually gold snakes and those snakes were wrapped up around in my on my arms and my legs and they were like crawling all over me and and I was just sitting there paralyzed with fear unable to move it was such a graphic piece and, and story that she she asked me to meet her later on in her office and and sat me down and was like what's going on samra <laughs> yeah and then I, I and then I opened up to her about the pressure that I was facing at home to get married and um, how terrified I was. and and she she was in many ways a bit of a confidant to me.
1: Did she ever give you any kind of advice about how you should react to a situation like this, that the situation that you were in at the time? It,
0: it, you know, that we lived in such a such a small town. like I grew up in this small, tiny town in Abu Dhabi where, every family knew each other everyone was in each other's business and and i'm sure like whoever thought what was happening to me was wrong were like maybe this is just part of their culture especially in a country like uae where you're there just for work and if if you don't have a job Mm -hmm. you get thrown out of the country so everyone's kind of living in this way of like you know to each their own right and um and and yeah she and my a couple of my other teachers were like kind of shocked like what you're in grade 11 you have so many years ahead of you you're so brilliant you you need to go to school you need to be in university like marriage at this age so yeah they were they were certainly shocked but they really couldn't do much about it it's not like you know here in Canada where you can call CAS if something like this is happening right it, there's nothing there there's no kind no support it's parents and and it's religiously allowed it's legally allowed right so no one can really say something and and the culture we pretty much accepts uh, and encourages at least and this was like I'm talking about like 20 years ago at that time you know it was all like marriage was the sole purpose of a girl's life there was nothing wrong that was happening right so And when you think about force, uh, force doesn't necessarily look like uh, a gun to your head or a knife to your throat. It is all about this coercion and pressure and conditioning. And when you're pressured from such a young age and conditioned from such a young age to believe that that's the sole purpose of your life, you know, as a child, you really, you really can't say much. And In my case, even though I never really wanted marriage and I wanted to go to school and I was terrified and inside I was screaming, no, but every single person around me was telling me how this is the best thing that ever could have happened to me. And you should be lucky that you got to your real purpose of being a woman sooner rather than later. You're the first girl among all your cousins and friends to get married. What an accomplishment. Don't turn this marriage proposal down. You're going to be ungrateful. You're never going to get something like this again. This is a gift from God and, you know, you should be lucky that you get it. And so who wants to be an ungrateful child? (laughs) You know, who wants to be that child who is saying no and earning the wrath and the displeasure of, the family and the culture and the community and the society so so I didn't want to like it so you remember I was talking about how like there's this the confusion confusing part of like being true to who I was which was this ambitious rebellious young girl versus the desire to fit in and be loved and accepted and respected Mm -hmm. and And eventually that that pull that desire, which we all feel it's not even just a desire, it's a it's a it's a fundamental need uh, for all of us, especially as children to get the approvals of, of our parents and our family and and everybody around us. So eventually that won. and even though inside I was terrified and everything in me was telling me no, but I just couldn't say no. Uh, because I didn't want to upset and disappoint anyone else.
1: And I know that your dad did tell you that you could leave or escape that wedding before you get married, but you still did not do that. Why was that?
0: So think about it this way, right? All the wedding cards are out. The wedding guests are there. It's the day of the wedding, the morning of the wedding. Until then, no one has said, no, this is not going to happen, right? I am terrified. And I know that if I say no, everyone will be targeting me for being Mm -hmm. that insolent, disappointing child. Everybody will look at me as the culprit. I will cause all kinds of shame and dishonor to my family. My dreams of education will be taken away from me because this is the only way I can get an education and that's what was portrayed to me. So my father saying that to me on the day of my wedding was not actually giving me a choice. It was his way of shedding accountability so that he doesn't have to be held accountable later on that, oh, you know, well, I said you could say no. Well, was is that really a choice? Should that choice ever even be given to a child? Like, should a child even be put in that position that they have to make a choice like that? A child is not capable of that. They, they don't have the the mental capacity and cognitive ability to be able to decide whether they want marriage or not at the age of 16, 17, right? Like this is the time I should be worrying about school and exams and and friends and concerts, not whether or not I want to spend the entire my entire life with a man that I've never met before. So, if that was really a, something that was a choice then you know there were so many times before when i said no they that guy, they should in fact that never should have even come to me if if a marriage proposal came my parents should have simply said to those people no our daughters too young she can make the choice later when if when when she wants i should never even have known about it like i'm the mother of two two daughters my one my older daughter is 20 and my younger one's 15 like would i ever put them in a position where they have to make that choice and then tell them on the on the wedding day, oh, by the way, you can still say no, like it's manipulation. It's so mm-hmm. it's like convoluted, you know, toxicity. And it, it, it's not, it's it like, no child should ever be put into that position ever. And that's what force looks like. It's pressure, it's coercion, it's this, this setting that, oh, you know, you can, you can say no, just just so that but but if you say no, just, you know, it's going to be your responsibility to make this decision? Like, really?
1: Yeah. And when I was listening to your talks before, I know there's like a lot of mix up between saying, you know, an arranged marriage versus a forced
0: marriage. But in your case, you were a child. A child marriage is always forced, Mm -hmm. right? See, an arranged marriage and an arranged marriage marriages do work. Like if you watch the Netflix series, Indian Matchmaker, you will see like, you know, if it's an empowered woman who is is making that choice out of all her empowerment that, yes, I want somebody to find me a husband and I want my mom to play Tinder or I want this this matchmaker to play Tinder or whatnot, right? If that's an empowered choice, great. That's your choice, right? You're making it with your full capability.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's that's okay. That's an arranged marriage. It, it could work. It may not work, but it's it's completely your choice. But think about, you know, a child. A child is not capable of making that choice. A child is not mature enough and at a point in their life where they could actually decide their future. Like they should be worrying about school and 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 goals and like, you know, just growing up. So putting a child in that position, conditioning a child and pressuring a child, that is always forced. A mm-hmm. child marriage is not an arranged marriage. It is a, it is a forced marriage.
1: And what I find very interesting is that. For children, there are a lot of things they can't do because they're not at a mature age to be able to do them. Yet when it comes to marriage, there is this thing that they're capable of making a decision about their entire future.
0: Think about it. Like I'm just going to talk about Canada, for for instance, right? Child marriage is legal in Canada. A lot of people don't know that. But in Canada, the minimum age for marriage is 16 with parental consent. So think about it. A girl under 18 cannot get a credit card. Cannot buy alcohol, cannot buy property, cannot hire a lawyer. If, let's say, she gets divorced or she wants the custody of her children, she cannot um, vote, yet she can be forced into marriage, all with the signature of a legal guardian or a parent. That marriage is the biggest and most important contract of our life. And we are able to do that, but not simply buy a house or get a credit card or even, you know, something simple as vote. Like how?
1: That's actually very crazy. And the fact that you have just have to get parental consent. So you really don't have a choice.
0: No. And, and, you know, people think that child marriage is two, two high school sweethearts who, who are in love and they want to get married. So parents reluctantly sign off. No, it's not like that. It's parents driving that and pressuring and conditioning their children So that even if the children have to go in front of a judge, which it never happens, but even let's say if that was a thing, which child is going to say, yes, uh, no, I don't want this in front of a random judge when they know that if they, when they go home, they're going to be ostracized by their family. Like, Mm no, that's not going to happen. So it should absolutely be outlawed. And in fact, McGill recently came out with a study where they found that they were almost Four thousand marriage licenses issued in canada in all provinces and territories where it was underage girls being getting married uh, with much older men in fact when some of the extreme cases for instance was like a a 16 year old girl getting married to a 51 year old man in new brunswick you know how is that a choice Mm -hmm. how is that even legal
1: And then the stigma and the pressure that they feel from people of their culture is probably even crazier to make them feel so trapped in it and not being able to make that choice.
0: Exactly. And the trauma of it, you know, it doesn't go away. Even if you manage to get out, like I've I've gotten out of it but I'm going to live with that trauma forever. Mm-hmm. And child marriage, you know, it almost always results in domestic abuse because what is abuse? Abuse is a power imbalance. It's about control, right? It's not about it's not about physical violence necessarily. Violence can be exerted in many different forms even you know, through manipulation, emotional violence, psychological violence, financial violence, right? And all of that is all in a way to control and exert power. And we're a child marriage is already starting off with a huge power imbalance, because it's a child who's completely dependent on the adult, you know, and she's not able to make her own choices. She's not able to you know, like I said, leave and hire a lawyer and do a lot of the things that that the adult can do. The adult is like her guardian, so to speak. So when you're starting from a place of this complete utter dependence on this adult that you're married to, you're already being abused because your choices have been taken away from you. Your autonomy has been taken away from you. And eventually it always leads to all other forms of abuse because it's always already starting from a place of such intense power imbalance. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, when you did get married, you were told that you're going to go to Canada and you're going to be able to get an education, especially since you were very
0: education oriented and very motivated to get that education. Yes, exactly. And that was the main uh, driving force behind me accepting uh, the -hmm. marriage proposal was that um, I would one day be able to go to school and get an education. First
1: of all, I wanted to ask, what kind of education did you want to?
0: Well, when I was little, I wanted to be a doctor. (laughs) I wanted to be a teacher and or like I dreamed of being a doctor and then And then teaching doctors like that was sort of my my thing. And and eventually I grew up and I became interested in like other things as well. Like I I got very interested in economics and and the business stuff. But but like, you know, I've always been about healing people and about helping people. Um, So that was sort of one thing that growing up, I always knew that I want to be in a profession that's about helping people.
1: But once you moved to Canada, things changed. How did they change?
0: So when I came to Canada, I was. Trapped in this child marriage to a man who I had never met before. He was my husband. I came to a country where I knew no one. I had no support system, no knowledge about my rights or legal or anything at all. Like, you know, I was completely and utterly dependent on him. And then I became pregnant right away because, again, birth control is not something that was talked about freely or readily in in my family. So, I had no idea about how to protect myself from that and I became pregnant. So, I became a teenage mom. So, it was me, my ex-husband and his parents. We were all living in the same house and his parents condoned that sort of power imbalance and control and and I was told I can't go out of the house. I cannot make any friends, have any agency or autonomy or anything because I I should be at home and I should be a good wife and a good daughter-in-law and a good mother and and uh, i tried very hard for a long time to be that person because again you know when i was talking about this need to fit in and to be accepted and respected so that need for approval was so strong that i wanted to somehow convince my new family of my worth and i tried to do whatever they would ask me to and so that maybe they will love me and maybe they will accept me but but at the same time my inner voice was like, no, this isn't right. And I wanna be able to go to school and I wanna be able to have a career and I and I have ambitions and I have goals. And that love for education was so strong that I just couldn't give up on it. So and I wasn't allowed to go to a proper high school. Uh, I ordered all my high school courses through distance learning. And I would do all my chores during the day and and serve him and his parents and take care of my baby. And then I would go home go into my room at night. And that's where I would study. So I passed all my high school courses through independent learning center, studying on my own and teaching myself and and then eventually um, finished my high school and then applied to university and I got in. But I was told that there's no money uh, to pay for my education. So I knew that I needed to make money on my own and going out of the house and getting a job was, in, was not allowed. So I started running a babysitting service and um, most of my money was taken away from me, but I would still stash away a little bit on the side every month and And that's eventually what allowed me to save up a little nest egg that I needed to pay for my first year tuition fee as a part-time student. Um, So it took a a long time, 10 years of lots of hard fought battles to be able to finally go to university. And that's when my world started to change. But during those 10 years, especially the first five years of marriage were so dark. And there were times when I felt so hopeless and helpless that moments when I didn't even want to go on living. And I had to keep that hope alive somehow. I would once in a while, stand in front of a mirror and practice my graduation speech that I would one day deliver, even though there was no hope of ever being able to go to university. But I, I knew that I needed to somehow keep that hope alive, even when doors were being shut left, right and center, because I felt like if I stop believing in my dreams, then who will?
1: During those five years, did you ever have anyone that you could go to or talk to about what you were experiencing?
0: No, no one.
1: And then... I, I know that you have went into it back and forth and tried to escape several times, but what is it that made you decide that I just need to leave? This is it. I can't take it anymore.
0: It was um, ultimately when I started university, like I said, after 10 years of marriage and uh, by then I had two children and that was the first time in my life that I was being treated with admiration and respect and kindness for the very things that I was ridiculed all my life for: my ambition, my goals, my dreams, my education, my intelligence, my individuality. And it was the first time in my life when my outer world actually complemented my inner world rather than conflicted with it. You know, like uh, I, I, I thought, wow. So the fact that I'm smart. It means that I'm not abnormal. The fact that I'm ambitious, it, there's nothing wrong with it. Because from such a young age, I was always told that who I am made me unworthy of love and acceptance. And here I was being accepted and loved by my professors, my friends, my new peers in school, treated with kindness for who I was instead of being told that I was worthy of being abused. And and that started to shift my inner world a lot. It started to shift my patterns of thinking. And uh, one day I stumbled upon the health and counseling center on campus and I started going for counseling and uh, I learned about my rights in this country. And as a Canadian, as a woman, as a human being, I started to learn about my options and, and the cycle of abuse. And eventually the biggest motivating factor for me was that I didn't want my daughters to grow up believing that that was normal. I didn't want them to be caught up in that same cycle that I got caught up in. And I wanted to give them a life where they could have every opportunity. And that's ultimately what drove me to leave.
1: What I find very interesting is the fact that it was only when you were able to see what's happening outside the bubble that you were in, that you were able to realize that you were not being treated the way you should be. And that shows how you had to leave that commun- that circle to be able to see that. And I don't think a lot of people might necessarily get the opportunity because you did say that you weren't allowed to go out and you weren't allowed to see those things. And that was,
0: I think, for a reason. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the biggest tool that abusers use to control their victim is isolation. Mm-hmm. And they want to isolate their victims, so that the victims will not learn about what's out there. Because if you learn about what's out there, you're going to leave, right? But the abusers, they make you believe that this is the best you can get. This is your entire world. There's no other options, And a lot of victims stay because they don't know what's out there. So for me, I never had any master plan of leaving the marriage. All I wanted to do was go to school. But the fact that I didn't give up on my education became the catalyst for me to be able to leave the marriage. Because Mm -hmm. when I went to school, that's when I started learning about my rights. I was exposed to the outside world. I was like, wow, it's not as bad as I, it was portrayed to be. And I started learning about abuse and it was wrong and the cycle of abuse. In fact, I remember the first time I saw the power and control wheel in my counselor's office on campus. I I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and reading because it was like my life depicted in black and white on a piece of paper. This is exactly how my life was. This is exactly what I go through on a day-to-day basis. How do they know this? And it, it, everything that I'd been internalizing for all those years that I was wrong, there was something wrong with me. I was flawed, blah, blah, blah. It kind of became this external thing that had a name. Mm-hmm. It was use, and it was not my fault and it was not okay and it was not normal and that's ultimately what gave me the power and courage to leave because knowledge is power. And that's why abusers don't want their victims to get that knowledge because then they would leave. So ultimately, isolation is, is the biggest tool. And that's why it's so important to break those cycles of isolation and to build connections with the community and and for people to reach out to people to people who are trapped in those situations because otherwise it's, it really does become impossible to leave.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you do say that obviously you did have your first child at a very young age. And so she was a part of a lot of the experiences that you did go through. Did she have any instances where she came up to you and, you know, shared with you something about what she's seeing? And how did that affect you? Oh, yes.
0: Many, many times. Um, In fact, she was eight years old one time. I remember this so well, when she said to me, mom, are you staying with daddy because of us? then please don't do that because we won't be happy until you're happy. It's okay if we have a smaller house and a smaller room or if I have less toys, but maybe we'll be happy if we're not here anymore. And she saw that from a very, very young age. And, and that's why like I do so much work around child mental health and a lot of it stems from what they're exposed to as young children and exposure to domestic violence is a form of child abuse. And and I always say to victims, especially women, like don't stay for the sake of your kids, leave for the sake of your kids.
1: And why do you think there is this thing where a lot of, you know, women feel like they need to stay for the
0: sake of their kids? It's a few things. First of all, it's this idea that society has ingrained in us that children need two parents. It's this idea of a single parent family being a broken family. And it's so convoluted because what kids need for a healthy upbringing is not two parents. They need love and support and nourishment and healthy relationships, even if it is just with one parent. In fact, it's much more damaging to children to grow up in that environment. And that psychological damage sometimes doesn't manifest until much later in life. So it's this, this cultural idea of what a family should be that is very, very toxic. Also, this idea that, you know, no matter what, it's family- you, you stay together and it stems from, you know, even when you look at parents or siblings, it's like, oh, blood is thicker than water. No matter what, you should always have relationships with your family. It's such a toxic idea. You know, a lot of times parents are abusive to children, but kids feel pressure to, to still have relationships with their parents. I've had, I've struggled with it so much. because My mom is very toxic to me and very emotionally abusive to me. And I've had a very hard time. And even now in, in this age in my life, to be able to set those boundaries with her and cut her out from my life. Because again, you know, society is all about like, if you look everywhere um, around you, who is like, mom can do no wrong, dad can do no wrong, you know, all that sort of uh, all those notions, because we put parents on a pedestal, we put spouses on pedestals, we put pressure on our children to conform and whatnot. And also traditionally, I think, you know, women have not been the primary breadwinners of homes and families, and, and now things are changing. Uh, but it's still going to be a, a long time, I think, you know, before we're actually achieving gender equality. And in certain cultures, we're we're way behind. <laughs> so, so this idea of a woman being able to take care of her children and live a life on her own is so alien. In fact, it's scorned upon. An independent woman is is almost like a source of shame. And I know I face that a lot from my family and from his family, and as if I've done something completely so wrong and sinful by leaving my marriage, and I'm living independently, so I must be a shameless, you know, promiscuous um, bad woman. So a lot of women they they feel like if they leave a marriage. They're not going to be able to make it because society keeps telling them that, that a woman can't survive on her own. They don't have confidence in their abilities. They don't have confidence in their abil- in, in how to figure things out. Society always tells them they're going to flat on fall flat on their face. They will be shamed forever. They, no one will accept them. They'll become damaged goods. They'll become used property. So a lot of women stay because they think there's no other options. For example, I was told that if I left my marriage, no one would marry my younger sisters because... Their older sister is going to be a divorcee. Uh, No one would want to marry my children, my daughters, you know, And, and all these ideas of like, I will be the source of shame. And a lot of people still think in my family that I'm the source of shame. So now I've kind of grown a very thick skin to it. In fact, I use it as fuel to my fire, but it's very difficult to get to that place. It's been a lot of pain that I've gone through to get to a place where I am today. So, and it's very understandable that not a lot of women want to do that.
1: It's very sad to think that that still happens right now, that if someone in the family does that, then everyone else is going to suffer from it. And so that person feels obviously trapped.
0: There is no way to go out of that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's like this, this sort of notion that if you say something or if you leave or if you raise your voice, you're going to not just set yourself up for failure you're actually bringing the whole family honor down and honor is so deeply tied to a woman's way of dressing and her ability to have children and her marital status and all these other things that are about gender role and that honor has nothing to do with who she is as a person so i often say you know a woman is expected to hold everyone's honor in her own hands but she will never be honored for who she is And that is the sad reality of a lot of a lot of the patriarchal cultures out there so um and so a lot of women stay for those reasons and in fact you know i was speaking at an international women's day event in brampton a few years ago and after my speech this man who got up in the audience to ask me a question and said what's the point of you winning all these awards and things if you end up as a single mother what's the point of this empowerment if you end up as a single mother and the way he said the word single mother was like as if like it's with so much disgust and and you know like it's a bad word almost and and i said to him you know sir if if you're right or he said what, what's the point of it if you end up as a single mother with a broken family and i said your fam my family might be broken in your eyes but we have never felt more complete and happy as a family but that that's really what the gist is right it's like no matter what the family unit should not be broken because being a single mom and being a broken family is worse than staying in it and tolerating all kinds of abuse. Mm-hmm.
1: And the thing is tolerating it will lead to more harm, not only on the woman herself, but also on the children. That absolutely big time. Yeah. big time. So were you, how was the experience for you leaving that marriage logistical wise? So getting a divorce and being
0: able to leave it. It was very difficult. It was uh, like when I left, uh, I did report my ex-husband to the police and he was arrested on four counts of assault and eventually pled guilty. But during that whole process, I had no support and I wasn't getting enough child support. I had to take him to court Um, which I didn't even have money for. And eventually I had to settle for less than what I need, what I deserved. And I was in the meantime for two years after I left, I was living in poverty and I was working four or five minimum wage jobs on campus at a time to make ends meet, even selling butter, chicken and biryani to fellow students. And, and, um, and going to school full time, raising my daughters and dealing with all the shame and cultural backlash that was being subjected towards me. So all those things were very, very debilitating and toxic and often felt like oh my god how am i going to survive and how am i going to move forward and there were many moments when i felt like maybe everyone's right and i should just go back but it was it was my daughters when i saw them and i'm like no i got to keep going for them and and you know some friends that i made and my professors at the time who would some some professors who i confided in who were uh, who were always motivating and encouraging me to keep going and and thankfully, I did uh, keep going one step at a time, and eventually got a lot of academic and career success. But those those two years were uh, were were very difficult, and it was a very vulnerable time. So I often say, you know, leaving is hard. Staying away is often harder because after leaving is when all the reality hits. Oh my God, I have to build my life from scratch, and sometimes below below scratch, you're like, you know, have to dig yourself out of a hole. And um, and it's very, very difficult for anyone, and especially for me as a somebody who didn't have an education at the time and no income, no family, no friends, no job, no support system. I felt very alone and very lost and very scared.
1: Mm-hmm. And obviously, I was going to ask before that. Did you have any backlash? But obviously, your family
0: wasn't OK with it. His family wasn't OK with it. Oh, it was it was horrible. It was uh uh, like his family spread rumors about me everywhere in Mississauga, that um, or among the whole Pakistani community in the GTA, that I was promiscuous and I was sleeping around and I ran away with someone random people would call me and ask me, oh, we heard you ran away with someone. Is that true? I was being sexually harassed by men, married older Pakistani men who thought I was fair game and used property because I was divorced. So they could they could say whatever they wanted to say to me. Like I would receive random phone calls from men and, and I don't even know where they got my number from about like hanging out and going out on dates and things like that. And I, would, I was so scared. I remember I went to, campus police all the time and I'm like can you please do like a lot of patrols around my area of campus housing because I was so afraid in fact living on campus housing gave me a lot of comfort during those days because you know it felt like more secure than living you know outside in the in the in the city and just like uh, just a ton of backlash, even from my own family and people calling me a failure. My, own, my brother-in-law once called me and said, what's the point of you winning all these awards and scholarships if you failed at the real purpose of being a woman? Shame on you. So there was a lot of that from my family, his family and the community. And and there still is, you know, it hasn't gone away. And I think now I've, I've just gotten to a place where I don't take it to heart. But it's still there because what I'm doing and the life I'm living is is so alien. You know, good women are supposed to stay quiet and submissive and silent and subservient. Uh, and I'm redefining that or hoping to at least. Do you think your daughters ever face anything because of what you have gone through? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. There have been. There have been incidents like one time when my daughter was, I think, in grade six, my younger one. One of her friends said to her that I can't be friends with you because your mom Is going um, to hell, and so are you. That's probably what she heard from her parents, obviously, at home. One time, um, my older daughter, because I, you know, since I've been public about my story, some people know me. And uh, one time, my, my older daughter was in an Uber, and an Uber driver basically uh said to her that oh yeah when women come to canada they become too empowered and they break up their families and homes and and then you know and it's it's this white culture that spoils women (laughs) my ex-husband said to my daughters or his daughters really that um women are only good for the three c's cooking cleaning and caring for their families and uh and the fact that your mom's doing so much is makes her a bad woman don't be like her so uh it, it it comes a lot and i have tried to shield and protect them from that as much as i can that's why i don't mingle with the pakistani community at all in in canada uh i try to stay away from all those kinds of cultural events and things and all my speaking and my and my work is all very mainstream and um, i just i'm been very selective about who i hang out with and who i surround myself with and but still gets through you know and we talk about it the good thing is we talk about it a lot and we dissect everything and now we've learned to laugh at it a lot so we just kind of like oh my god can you believe that person said this that's so funny that's so you know that's so um convoluted and and i think the fact that they're able to see that and and talk to me about it i'm sure it hurts and it it hurts because it comes from their father a lot and like for me it hurts because it comes from my mother. Uh, so when it comes from people that you want uh, approval from or people that are your parents, of course it hurts. But I think we, we've we developed some very healthy mechanisms and patterns that that allow us to just be a little bit protected from that.
1: It's actually so sad to see how ingrained it is in people's heads. And some people still refuse to leave that kind of mindset. I know some people are aware that that kind of mindset is wrong. And some people have left that mindset or
0: tried to
1: grow in a way but some people still refuse to leave that people
0: do and you know for the way i think about it is like let's say you're a woman who has grown up in that culture and mindset and patriarchy and you have convinced yourself or society has convinced you that you are unequal you are less worthy less smart less capable you cannot make it and because of that conditioning you have stayed and tolerated all kinds of abuse and then you see me, a woman like me, who is not only surviving, but thriving and has left and has managed to make it. So you have two choices now, right? You either accept, yes, oh my gosh, this woman is, you know, has done it. Maybe I could do it too, or maybe I could have done it too, and I should support that and, and break that cycle. Or the other choice is you know, um, that, no, 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 that woman is bad, and, and I'm on the right path. But imagine like, being able to admit that you've lived your entire life based on lies is very, very painful. And especially when you're at a later stage in life and you really can't go back and do much about it. It's very painful. So it, when, when, when people target all this backlash and hate towards me, especially when it comes from women, which is a lot. I know it's not about me. They don't even know me. It's about their own pain it's very hard for them to admit that they've lived their lives based on these lies that people have told them and they believed it. It's, it's much easier to point fingers at me and sit on their fake pedest- pedestal and call me all kinds of bad words and shame and names. So I don't take it personally anymore. I, I, just, I just wish them the best. And I guess the only emotion I have for people like that is sympathy.
1: And there's only so much you can do. You can bring awareness. You can talk about your experiences, but that's all you can do. The rest is up to them. Absolutely, you
0: can't change people who don't want to be changed. You can't open people's eyes. Uh, you can simply share. You can simply try, and the rest is up to them. You know, when people are adamant about not listening or changing, they will belie- they will surround. Them. Because for 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 me, as one person saying all this, there are a hundred other people who are saying the other. Th- the, the condoning the other side of things, right? And I think into that like, we surround ourselves ourselves with people who speak the same language and who say the same things because that confirms our own unconscious biases, a- and hence we are we we shut down our own critical thinking. So when people don't want to open their eyes, you can't force their eyes open.
1: So going back a little bit to you escaping your marriage, would you say there could have been
0: something that made you leave sooner? Yes, absolutely. I think if I had started university sooner, if I had had some kind of support system, that was that would have been the biggest thing if, if I'd had some education and maybe a job and some financial support under my belt. Because in my case, you know, I had to do everything from scratch and fact, like there was no support system. There was no family. There was no friends. There was no financial um Uh, independence. And so all of those things contributed to the fact that i stayed so yeah i think there was a lot that and even just my own beliefs you know about having grown up in a in a culture and a family where abuse was so normalized i i thought it was normal and it wasn't until when i went to school and went to counseling that i learned it was not normal so had i had i maybe not grown up in that kind of a family where abuse was normalized and if i had let's say my parents had a healthy and happy and loving marriage and i'd seen that and and in my marriage, I would have been able to instantly recognize, no, this isn't, this isn't okay, and be able to leave. But because I'd already seen that, I just didn't know that it was not normal.
1: Mm-hmm. And about your family, I know you said that obviously you've seen it at home. So that's where you first saw it. And then there were instances where your father did tell you that you could escape, but obviously you couldn't at those times. You also say that before he passed away, he did tell you, that you should escape if you can and when you can. But seeing those things and hearing those things from him yet seeing him being
0: the way he was with your mother. What was that like to you? That's such a great question and I have such I have struggled with that a lot. In fact, if I could go back and rewrite my book, I would I would certainly write it differently, especially my father's role in my life because again, we're always on a journey of learning and and since I've written the book it a lot of things have come to light for me and just, you know, become conscious of a lot of patterns that I had even after my marriage ended. But one of the big things is that a lot of the abuse that I tolerated in my marriage, the biggest factor for me tolerating all of that was because of what I saw my father do. And any woman's, any girl's first exposure to a male figure in her life is her father. And when I saw my father treat my mother so badly, and then justify it by telling all of us as his daughters that our mother was bad, that's why he treats her that way, because she deserved it. And then hearing that from my husband that he treats me that way, because I deserved it. That was normal in fact even his own sort of victim mentality about money and you know he was always in debt my husband was always in debt my father was always like very reckless with anger he had very extreme volatile mood swings and my ex-husband was exactly like that there were so many similarities and you know as a young girl going up when i saw my father and that was my i guess idol for what a man should be that's what my ex-husband was and it made me feel absolutely horrible about myself and in fact my father sided with my husband on many occasions during my marriage and convinced me to go back to him. It was only on his deathbed when he said that, but I mean, he knew that I have no support. I have nothing. uh, And it was almost again, his way of just kind of feeling good about himself. But what did he actually do concretely to, to make that a reality? Right. If he really cared about me and my education, he would have found a way to send me to university instead of pushing me into a marriage, or found a way to not let that happen. Or if he really treated, really respected women, he would have treated my mother with respect. He hit my mother in front of us many times. You know, he threw her out of the house. He called her all kinds of bad words and names. And there was a lot that I didn't write in my first book about that because I didn't quite think it was my place to to be able to say that, and I w- hadn't finished processing it so much in my own head. But you know, I'm I'm. I'm opening up about that a lot in my second book.
1: And yeah, it does take a lot of time to process those experiences. How do you think we can explain and introduce to younger genera and teach younger generations what signs of manipulation and abuse of that kind look like? Cause I don't think a lot of people are aware or are able to recognize those signs.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think there's a big gap of knowledge when it comes to that because a lot of times we look at abuse and we want to do damage control because the abuse has already happened and now we want to like go to therapy and we want to, you know, heal from it. But if you're just doing that, we're not going to change those numbers and statistics. You know, one in three women, in fact, that's an underrated statistic. So more, almost half or even more than half of us face some kind of violence in our lives, especially intimate partner violence. And in some cultures, it's almost like the numbers are staggering. So If you think about that like you know we're not if we're just going to keep doing damage control we're not going to bring those numbers down we have to be preventive about it we have to be proactive about it we have to teach our boys how to respect women we have to teach our girls how to stand up for themselves and what healthy relationships look like and be able to identify the early signs of abuse if they find themselves in those situations you know if somebody says i love you to you in five days after meeting you without even getting to know you that's not romantic that's a red flag contrary to what it says in romantic movies if someone's showering you with all kinds of, uh, you know, affection without understanding you as a person, you know, they're trying to win your trust so they can use that to manipulate you later. You know, if someone's making you, making, making you feel bad about yourself and making jokes at your expense and teasing you about your body and, and yeah, oh, I was just joking. Like that's not jokes. That's not humor. Those things we're not taught. Because again, we have been conditioned by society to see our self-worth as an extension to our relationships with other people instead of our relationship with ourselves. So we want to be accepted because if that person doesn't accept us, it means that we're not good enough. Like the, the way someone treats you has nothing to do with you. It has to do with them. But we don't learn that until much later. So we basically spend half of our lives trying to fit in. And then once we become conscious of that, we spend the rest of our lives trying to unlearn all that crap. So if we're always in that damage control mode, things aren't going to change. And I have those conversations with my daughters diligently so that they know what these early signs are. In fact, one of my proudest moments as a mom was when my daughter one time said, Mom, I think my friend is in an abusive relationship because her, her boyfriend, you know, he's so nice overall like he buys her flowers and chocolates and gifts and he's always like so affectionate and stuff but he gets upset when he, she when she hangs out with her friends he gets all like moody about it and he gets all like oh he guilts her and stuff and says oh why why are you leaving me why are you hanging out with your friends and you know and then he tries to isolate her or he like lashes out and then he you know and he calls her bad words but then the next day he buys her flowers and he treats her so well and 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 i just i don't think that's healthy but that that girl who was in that relationship thought it was perfectly OK. And he was ultra romantic and he was just so passionate and he loved her so much. That's why he got upset when she went out without him. And th- that's not love. That's isolation. And um, and the fact that my daughter was able to recognize that was huge for me. And it's and it was as a result of me having those conversations with them on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a conversation that a lot of parents needs to need to have with their kids, even if it's not something that happens in their family, it does not mean that it might not happen to their kids. And also I was going to say how we always think of violence and abuse and, you know, m- and manipulation and physical ways, but it's also the words that we use. People yeah.
0: undermine how strong words can be. Absolutely. People do. And in fact, those words and non-physical abuse actually leaves deeper marks on your soul because the marks on your body will heal. Uh, The marks on your soul last forever. Mm -hmm. I was physically abused. I don't even remember those incidents much anymore. But what I do remember and still struggle with is that negative talk in my head, which is telling me that I'm not good enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm a failure and all those kinds of things. And the imposter syndrome I struggle with as a result, the anxiety that I struggle with as a result. And that non-physical abuse is often far, far more damaging than physical abuse. Sometimes the physical abuse never happens. And a lot of victims think that it's not abuse because he's not hitting me, but it still is. In fact, it's, it's so damaging and so toxic because like I said, abuse is not about slaps and kicks. Abuse is about power and control and people mm-hmm. and control can be exerted in many ways.
1: Moving a little bit forward to COVID-19 times, I know, and I think we've all heard about it, domestic violence has drastically increased in those times. And that's partly because of things like isolation, uh, financial instability, and all of that. Knowing what you have gone through in the past, going through this again, in terms of isolation and things like that, do you ever get any flashbacks into what you've experienced before?
0: Yes. And that's just such a great question. In fact, in the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was having a lot of anxiety. And there was this one time I remember I was doing my hair and, you know, in my bathroom in downtown Toronto, living on my own. It's been 10 years since, you know, I've been left, I've left my marriage, et cetera. And then I'm doing my hair in my, and suddenly I have this flashback of this one incident where I'd gone with my ex husband to the mall. We were in the dollar store in Dollarama and he forced me to wear the hijab and a, a little bit of my hair escaped from my hijab and he got so upset with me. And when we got home, he he hit me quite a bit. And suddenly that that image came to me and it was so vivid as if it's happening now and i couldn't breathe and i started to like just feel like i'm in I'm, I'm i'm just running out of breath and i and i and and that fear and that intense anxiety and apprehension just kicked in and i was like what's going on and then and then those those few days i mean a bunch of other things happened like you know i i ordered takeout once and my favorite pasta from Taroni. and suddenly i started hearing my mother-in-law's words in my head that like about guilting me and shaming me for having choices and desires and as if by and and that I'm selfish for ordering food for myself and wasting my ex-husband's money, <laughs> even though this was my money. And, you know, uh, and I couldn't figure out what's going on. I'm like, why am I like suddenly remembering things from like 20 years ago? Right. And, and I scheduled a session with my therapist and he said something to me that was so profound. He asked me, Samra, when was the last time you were isolated and you were told you can't go out of the house or meet your friends? And I was like, it was in my marriage. He's like, yes, that's what's happening. Even though your mind knows cognitively, you know, that this isn't the same situation, but your body is reliving the trauma because that was the last time this happened. So our body carries that. We don't move on from trauma. We move on with it. And the pandemic has been especially hard on women who are in abusive situations, because again, like I said before, isolation is the best friend of an abuser. And right now, isolation is the norm. A lot. And abuse has been escalating in frequency and in intensity. Uh, in fact, across in Canada, there are reports of domestic abuse rising as much as 400% in parts of the country. And it's not just about the victims, even survivors are having a hard time. You know, like for me, it's been 10 years, but I had a hard time and I know others are too. So it's definitely been challenging.
1: And having gone through all of this, how are you
0: and your daughters healing? We are big, big proponents of therapy. So all of us are in individual therapy, as well as family therapy. We talk a lot about our feelings very openly, we hold space for each other. We are always checking in with each other. How are you feeling? How's it going? You know, what's the anxiety level today? No, it's a very normal conversation in our home to be able to talk about Anxiety and how we're feeling, and oh, I had a panic attack today. It wasn't great. Like that. Those are some of our dinner table conversations. (laughs) So, and and I and I'm and you know, it's it's really good to be able to talk about our feelings and our mental health very openly with each other because we support each other. And there's something we have as a family, the three of us, that um, whoever needs support, we put that person in the middle and then we hug them from each either side. So, for example if I'm having a bad day and I'm having anxiety and I'm very open about it, like, yeah, I'm just feeling a lot of anxiety today or something happened or I'm just feeling off, right? So both of them would come on either side of me and hug me and then it's going to be a mommy sandwich. You know? That's
1: so wholesome. And I love how you're talking about it. I think that's so important, especially because a lot of the times we feel like we can't talk about it or we shouldn't because you know I'm the only one experiencing and no one will know what I feel and how I feel it. And so by being able to talk with each other about it, And I know that this will greatly play out in the relationships they develop with others. And so it's very wholesome to see it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we can't lean on our core support system for support, really, then I don't think we should have people in our lives, uh, at least as part of our core family who are toxic and, and not good for our mental health and well-being. So I try to role model it for them. And I certainly have come a long way from the kind of parenting model that I grew up with, which was like, parents can do no wrong and they can't have meek moments and parents are always perfect. And that's what my parents always portrayed, even though they were horrible parents. So in my case, like I'm always like, no, I don't want to be perfect. I want to be human because they're human. I don't want to set up, set impossible standards for them that they think that anytime they have bad feelings or they're less than perfect, that there's something wrong with them. No. So I'm very open about how I feel and that makes them feel comfortable about sharing their feelings with me.
1: And a part of your openness also took place when you wrote your book. And I know how you talk about how obviously it wasn't an easy thing to do because you had to, in some way, relive a lot of the experiences that you went through. Did your
0: daughters read the book? My younger one did twice. My older one hasn't yet. And, and the reason for that is my older one saw a lot of that abuse. So she's had a much harder time with it. And she's struggled with PTSD and depression because of what she saw so it's it it can be very triggering for her so we just decided as a family that she won't read it for now I mean I'm sure one day she will but my younger one has read it and it was hard for her to read as well but uh she was more curious whereas my older one was like this is going to be horrible for me right now. <laughs> so your
1: younger one obviously didn't get to experience as much as your older one did, but how did it feel for you knowing that she not only got to read about what happened, but also get an insight into how you're thinking and what you're thinking?
0: She was grateful for the truth. I think as hard as it was for her to read it, that this happened to my mother, the other hand also, she was very proud she was inspired. And I think it helped her form much better decisions about how much, if at all, she wants her father in her life. My older daughter, because she saw a lot of the abuse and she had the firsthand experience for her, it was very, like she was very quick to cut her father out. Whereas my younger daughter struggled with it quite a bit because she was very young, so she was in that playful stage where, you know, dad is playing with her and taking her to the park and all of those things. But she also was, as she grew up, saw a lot of the misogyny and the sexism and, and all those kind of remarks and things that he made. And she had trouble with that. And so I think she, wa- she was looking for some answers and some context. And I think the book gave her a lot of that, as well as just, you know, in her in terms of her own understanding of, of what it is like and what it means to be a complete a human being who's living her truth.
1: Now, I do want to move a little bit away from talking about the past and start talking a little bit about the things that you're doing right now and what you plan to do in the future. But I do want to ask you one more thing. Mm -hmm. Having gone through all of this and looking back at it now, do you ever feel like you're holding a grudge towards the people that weren't so good in the experience? Do you ever think
0: about forgiving them? How do you feel? I don't think I hold a grudge. At the same time, I do have anger inside of me. I'm not gonna lie. Forgiveness is not a static thing. It's not like I get up one day and I decide, okay, I'm gonna forgive them. Forgiveness is dynamic, and there are days I forgive them, there are days I don't. There are days I feel like, you know what, I I just don't want to be angry right now because <laughs> and by anger, I don't mean that I'm constantly like vengeful. I I don't wish them harm in any way. And I'm not feeling sorry for myself in any way. I'm, I'm very happy and grateful for my life today. But I do feel a sense of deep loss that my childhood and my innocence was taken away from me. No one should ever be subjected to that kind of abuse. And I was, and I feel that those people should be held accountable. And whether it's my parents or his parents or him, it just was not okay. And that Is very important because sometimes you feel this pressure from society that, oh, you know, just forgive, forgive, forgive. But forgiveness is not about the other person. Forgiveness is about you because I don't want them to have power over me anymore. So, no, I don't have any grudges. I don't have any ill will towards anyone. In fact, on the contrary, I I really do wish them well and I wish that, you know, they would they would also be able to open their eyes and realize that life is a lot more than the systems that they believe in. But I do feel angry about what was taken away from me, not in a vengeful way, but in a, this should never have happened kind of a way.
1: And what are the ways in which you channeled this anger and frustration and, you know, all the emotions that you felt because of your, these experiences towards change?
0: It's fuel to my fire. It's, it's this thing that uh, this happened to me and it never should have happened. But I'm not the only one it happens to, sadly. This is the story of millions and millions of people, especially women and girls around the world. And I wanna do my part to make a difference. So while I don't wish them any ill will, but I do I do want to create a change where this doesn't happen it's no longer the norm and whatever i can do in my little lifetime i want to do that and hopefully be able to be a catalyst for others to carry this work on so you know everything i do comes from that place of purpose whether it's my speaking whether it's my writing whether it's now you know pursuing a career in medicine and and everything that i'm doing today and i always do comes back to that same purpose that i want to help create a world where this doesn't happen to anyone
1: And you do say that medicine has always been something that you aspired to do. Yes. I
0: mean, I always aspired to be in a profession that was about helping people. So medicine and education were kind of my two things. And and I'm hoping to combine the two, you know, so, so, you know, I, um, When I I was in university the first time around and during my marriage and after it, I I just wanted to get a degree to get a job and put food on the table for my children. So I picked a degree that would get me there quickest, which was a business and economics degree. And I am very grateful for that. And I had a good career and everything. But my speaking and writing work exposed me more and more to the world of mental health and and how much I could contribute, given my own experiences of l- having lived through it, plus if I could combine that with medical expertise and knowledge and training and background and be able to help others in that way as an expert. That's what prompted me to leave my banking career and go into medicine. and uh, And I want to, you know, combine the two worlds and be able to not just treat my patients, but also uh, use my platform as a writer and author and speaker to educate people on healing and owning their emotional and mental well-being. and being proactive about it instead of always doing damage control
1: and how has your medical school experience been like
0: it's been great. It's it's definitely been, you know, there's definitely been bumps because I come from a completely non-science background. And in the beginning I was like, my gosh, these people are speaking a language that I don't know. Like they're saying words that I can't even pronounce. And I but you know, I I'm I'm a very curious person and I'm very driven by curiosity. And learning has always been my safe space. And I, I find joy and peace in learning and knowledge. So so I just leaned into it and I found my own ways of of hacking science. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, now I've kind of settled into a nice, nice little rhythm and it's starting to make sense. And I'm like, oh, all right, this is how it works. <laughs> you know, it's not that <laughs> different from economics. It's like the same kind of concept about, oh, this is the normal and then this happens and then how do you get better? <laughs> so, uh, so I just, I, I just treat it that way and, um, and I'm really enjoying it. Now, this
1: is a slightly off topic, but you're involved in a lot of things, whether that's through, you know, the whole medical school side of you, the whole social change side of you, and then obviously caring for your daughters and then caring for yourself. My question is, how
0: do you do it with <laughs> all of with so many things on your plate? Um, I've had my little tricks. So I put everything in my calendar. And even if it's a two minute phone call, because otherwise I can't remember things. I am very diligent about focus, which means that so I don't multitask, uh, as, as counterintuitive as that sounds. What I do is I focus on one thing at a time, but I just built in focus time um, in my day. So for instance, right now, I'm 100% in this conversation. I'm not thinking about the fact that I have to learn all about uh, diabetes type 2. Uh, before Thursday, <laughs> right um so i'm I'm in this, I'm present here when I'm with my kids, I'm with them when I'm with my partner, I'm with him when i'm uh, and when I'm in school, I'm completely with school like yesterday was a very busy day for me with classes and everything and uh and 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 my partner knew that, and I, I didn't text him the whole day <laughs> he was he was like, yeah, I know Monday's your crazy day, right so uh, I'm completely present or try to be completely present in whatever I'm doing in that particular moment. And because if you try to do 10 things at one time, you're never going to be able to do any of those things right. But if you do one thing at a time, you can do 10 things in one day, but you could just have to give each thing its, its, its focused attention. And I'm very good at communicating with my family. Um, so my kids will know that okay, right now mom's busy because she's doing this. And then you know, later on we're going to make dinner together and have some family time because a lot of times problems arise when you don't communicate with people around you and they, you leave people hanging. But I'm very good at let let like you know we have shared we have a shared calendar as a family and stuff. I always am also very proactive about blocking out me times. So I'm very proactive about my mental health rather than oh I'm having a burnout or a panic attack and now I've got to take care of myself. I, you know, I'm I'm gonna take some time out every day, whether it's listening to a podcast or doing some meditation or just something that is for me, so that I don't feel like I'm putting myself on the back burner. And also, I think very importantly, uh, I'm getting trying to get better at saying no, because as much as I do, there's so much that I say no to, uh, because it's just not feasible. And I used to feel guilty about saying no, because especially because my work comes from such a place of passion that I want to do it all. But I understand that, okay, I have limitations, I can't do it all. And if I try to, I won't do justice to any of it. So um, I'll say no quite a bit. And I've, and I delegate as well. So I have a good support system like agents and whatnot, who will have those conversations on my behalf.
1: How would you say you've worked on developing the ability to communicate well with others? Because I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with and it's probably
0: a very important aspect of a lot of the relationships you have with others. I think uh, it's about transparency and valuing other people and their time. So, you know, when we uh, sort of, when we hold our relationships close to us and we don't want, like, I always think about it like if I have a loved one, like I have my daughter, I have my partner and if, and I adore them. and, And if, if, if let's say they, they're not, in touch with me the whole day and I have no idea what they're doing and where they are, it's going to make me feel like really like, Oh my gosh, like, is everything okay? I might be worried about them. I might also feel like they're ignoring me. Like, you know, but if I know what they're doing, if I know, if I, if I'm, if I, if they're communicating with me, then I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I understand. So, so that open communication with people who are close to you is so important because, you know I, I know when my daughter's going out somewhere and even if i don't hear from her it's not like because she's not opening up to me i know where she is when what she's doing and right. and i respect her boundaries and i respect her space all of us need that but i think it's about valuing and respecting other people who are in your life because when you tell and communicate with other people you are showing them that you respect them and their time and they do the same for you so it's a reciprocal kind of a thing to give and take so so um i'm i'm very big on that like we have our family group chats and we have shared calendars and we just keep on top of each other's lives and we support each other um instead of feeling like you know oh i don't know what's going on with mom she's always away my kids know where i am my kids know what i'm doing my kids are they know that if they need me they know how to reach me you know
1: and i also think that not only promotes being able to communicate with communicate with each other but also be honest with each other
0: Mm -hmm. exactly exactly uh we don't hide things. We don't feel the need to lie at all. My, like my children never, like, I want to, I always parent with the motto that if they're in trouble, I should be the first person they call. They should never be afraid of me. Um, I hate the fear-based parenting model that I grew up with. So I don't want my kids to ever be afraid of me. I, I don't want them to ever be afraid of telling me something about themselves. Um, so I'm, I'm like a, a friend, a confidant, and yes, I am their mother and I want to guide them, but it's not my job to be in the driver's seat of their life. They're in the driver's seat of their life. Uh, my job is to support them, to be the best version of themselves, not myself. So um, and they know that. And, uh, and, you know, I think having that honesty and openness with each other uh, develops trust and it develops faith and it develops, you know, that camaraderie and family bonds, and they go a long way. And that's a big reason why I'm able to do all what I do because uh, I have such a robust support system around me.
1: And that's so valuable because I know a lot of people who are afraid to go back to their family when they're in trouble, when in reality, you should be able to feel comfortable to to go to the people that care about you to tell them about those things that are going on. And it's so nice to see that you're doing that with your daughters.
0: Yes, exactly. My hope is that you know they they know that I've always got their back.
1: So moving a little bit into the future, where do you see yourself going next? What do you hope to achieve?
0: Well, I mean, I'm very dedicated currently to my medicine and um, and my med school. So that's another two years of med school and then residency, hopefully into psychiatry. And um, and I'm I'm very uh, also passionate about being able to keep expanding my speaking and writing work in that field and in that arena, Um, especially because we need diverse voices in the mental health world Uh, because our experience of mental and emotional well-being is not the same as the whitewashed or mainstream experience that we often hear about. There are layers of trauma. There are layers of discrimination, racism, misogyny, and things that we experience that others probably don't and or not to that extent. So there's a big need for cultural humility and cultural competency in any field, especially in the world of medicine, and especially in the world of mental health. So I want to keep doing that work and, and keep raising my voice and my perspectives. And um, on a personal front, you know, I um, just excited to see how my daughters are growing and flourishing into into living their own truths and um, it's very gratifying
1: to see that and that wraps up our episode for today i really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i did don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts or spotify where you'll be the first to know when each episode is released it would also mean the world if you could leave a rate and a review You can also feel free to follow on Instagram at htdipodcast or send me an email at htdipodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and I'll see you guys in the next one.